0: Shablam! And welcome to Haydn Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan. And with me is Ari Mishik, who is a professor of trumpet at Sacramento State University. He is also a member of the brass quintet Brass Over Bridges, the Conductorless orchestra, One Found Sound, and a freelancer in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we'll be talking about using creativity to fuel our musicianship, especially during the difficult times of the pandemic. Welcome, Ari. Thanks for being here.
1: Hey, great to be here, Patty. Really yeah. looking forward to talking with you.
0: Absolutely. I remember you being such a warm and friendly presence at the conservatory when we both overlapped at San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And of course, the nature of being a string to brass, we kind of get into our little clicks. You know, I couldn't take some of the classes that you were taking and you weren't in the chamber program and all these things. But I just remember walking around and saying, oh, like you're such a nice presence. Actually, there's one memory I have where I had to kick you out of the recital hall for some reason. Oh, I think because I had (laughs) like my recital coming up and I felt so bad because for brass, Players, you're always looking for big spaces to practice in right but you're like so kind about like oh it's okay I'll pack up and you know so anyway
1: <laughs> wow 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 oh that's so nice to hear I mean I appreciate that and yeah I mean I always felt like you were a super thoughtful person and it's been really nice to listen to your podcast and just oh, hear thanks. all the thoughtful conversations that you've been having with other people and yeah I really appreciate you saying that that's really nice I guess you're welcome
0: I don't know <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. but we also were catching up before recording and realized that we did overlap at Spoleto for one year I don't know if you wanted to mention any of your experiences at that festival
1: absolutely I mean I, I felt like that festival was just a really really great experience and I think that you maybe had a similar experience and just enjoying the ensembles and the energy of the different groups that we got to play with yes. and just the enthusiasm that the other musicians had for what we were doing. And it's really that kind of stuff that I think back on and it's like when you have an experience like that or a really great performance in general, it's kind of something that you keep with you forever. And so grateful to have had those experiences.
0: Yeah. And I also think what's so great musically at that festival is you get to do a number of different genres or areas of classical music or music in general. So for instance, we are remembering it was my first year there when we overlapped and you're, second year right you know we did our standard symphonic repertoire but we also did the music for city lights the charlie chaplin film and played against a silent movie you know we played charlie chaplin's music really absolutely there's other little chambery groups that we are a part of and you know there's just a wide range of collaborations that go on at that festival that are just a lot of fun
1: the variety of things that we got to play and the charlie chaplin film i don't know if you in the back in the brass we were able to sort of like watch the film were you able to watch the film? Film at all
0: i don't think so if i because we kind of were sitting sort of stage with the movie projected above us i believe yeah so for a lot of times string players we aren't able to really see what's going on i think you there's a couple times i could look over my shoulder and glance if i had a long rest or something but
1: okay okay so you guys are, yeah you guys are busy during all of that time we yeah. we have more rest so that's our privilege but it's you know i actually really enjoyed watching that movie along with the music and you know just sort of being really interested in the fact that Charlie Chaplin wrote, directed, and acted, acted and created the music for the film. I mm-hmm. uh, was really impressed by that. And then also the story in general yes, uh, was very touching. Yes. And yeah, there's just a really fun, memorable performance, I think.
0: I agree yeah I re-watched the movie prior to starting the cycle of playing it you know because just for my own research and kind of yeah. I hadn't watched that movie in a really long time and yeah I remember I think it, it moved me to tears at the end and it's yeah. one of those things where that doesn't really happen to me personally that often with the film like I can see if it's sad but it doesn't necessarily get me to that but yeah it's just such a delicate touching ending but I would say revisit that movie for any listeners who haven't seen it in a really long time it's just a beautiful beautifully done and absolutely yeah Yeah, And the music's really good too (laughs) hard but very good
1: right hard yeah great film and yeah I mean very interesting how well you know even without words in that it's a silent film and how well they're able to sort of communicate on that emotional level yeah Yeah.
0: the other thing we were mentioning is you're originally from Iowa and I currently live in Minnesota but then we both spent time in San Francisco and so we kind of wanted to share with each other what our first impressions were of living in San Francisco because that's such a vibrant city that there's yeah. so much happening all at well you know so do you want to share like kind of yeah, your first yeah, thoughts yeah. so
1: of- I mean I stayed with some family friends I think on like my first night in San Francisco and I remember initially being just sort of struck by the temperature I woke up and the window was cracked open a little bit but the temperature was like perfect to be sleeping you know snuggled up in some blankets and then just going outside and the first thing you smell is this fresh eucalyptus smell from the trees yeah and then I'm like going around like a total tourist I'm asking people I'm like I'm looking for Van Ness Avenue <laughs> and like that and realizing that that's the street in San Francisco and for me it was an experience for sure of coming out to a bigger city and kind of getting to experience that for the first time I was very excited.
0: Yeah. My take on it was a little similar in some ways, but I actually had spent some time in the Bay Area to visit my sister. She went to University of California, Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So I had spent a little time in Berkeley specifically. So I knew Cheeseboard, Ars Mendy, the other Ars Mendy. (laughs) I I did know some, like I know Chez is there. Like I knew some of the terrain around, but that's not necessarily San Francisco proper. And some of my first memories are of trying to find my apartment, which ended up being the beloved apartment d 1200 third avenue where you know cindy and aaron and paula all previous guests of the podcast we were roommates there over over the span and finding that yeah it it was a really fun time finding that apartment was probably one of the emotionally taxing things i've ever had to do because i elected myself since i was in california already to fly up and every day all my mission was just to find an apartment Mm -hmm. and on a daily basis, I was rejected and rejected for whatever reasons. I think I dedicated about a week to do this thinking I could definitely find something for the three of us during that time. And man, it was, I remember there was one point where I really had no leads anymore. And I sat down on the curb wherever I was, probably in like outer sunset. And I just started crying because oh I was so dejected. And I was like, what are our options? We need to find a place yeah. to live to go to school. Yeah. And then long story short, it ended up miraculously working out at this amazing place. But other than that traumatic experience of finding an apartment, yeah. I mean, the city is just vibrant. It's full of characters, full of history. Yeah. It's full yeah. of inspiration. And that's something right. that I love about that city too, is I feel like you walk down a street and you turn a corner and you see something completely new every single time. Even if, if you walked down that corner on a daily basis, there's something different yeah. in this way. It kind of ties into your outside topic. But I remember finding yeah. a lot of creativity in that city. Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just a great I, I, town.
1: It is, it is, absolutely. And I think that the fact that it is such this great town with these interesting areas really attracts people to live in San Francisco. And then you end up with a real housing issue. Yeah. It's still the rent and everything is very high. And
0: Yeah, we can't solve that on the podcast but
1: what did you say you can't solve that on the podcast <laughs> no,
0: there's no way to solve that
1: on the podcast
0: <laughs> well anyway ari would you like to do some spitfire questions please please okay mozart or beethoven beethoven shasakovich or prokofiev prokofiev netflix or video games netflix basil or cilantro basil harry potter star wars or lord of the rings star wars symphony or chamber music
1: chamber music oh yeah definitely can you yeah maybe you're surprised I mean yeah as a brass player like especially when I was at the conservatory I definitely was going down the orchestral path and I mean don't get me wrong I love to play orchestra music but I feel a little bit more of a connection to doing chamber music now and there's a little bit more room for me in that I guess it just Mm -hmm. sort of feels like that
0: okay (laughs) I dig it yeah coffee or tea coffee favorite practice room
1: I really liked practicing in the classrooms at SFCM. Oh. And yeah, 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 yeah. I really liked practicing in those just because they had nice windows out and yes. they are pretty big spaces. So if I could ever find a classroom, I would grab one and try to spend more time practicing than looking out the window, I think. <laughs>
0: yeah I know it's tempting isn't it to like people watch yeah
1: yeah
0: (laughs) is there any particular classroom that if you had the pick of the litter that you would Mm, go to
1: okay if I had if I had to choose okay so if you go I think on the I can't remember if it's the third or fourth floor where we had most of the practice rooms there's a classroom I think it's on the south side southeast side with really actually a really great view all the way out of I'm not sure what hill that is that might be like Bernal Hill or something over there with the tree on it yeah
0: yeah yeah oh I know that that tree so well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, isn't that kind of it's just kind of an odd tree like a hill with one tree on it. Yeah. You could always pick it out in the distance. I always thought that was pretty cool.
0: You know what this is going to sound so silly, but I I know that tree so well because that is the scene that you look out to in Jean-Michel Fontenot's studio and yeah. I would practice there often and I would imagine myself sitting there when I was practicing. <laughs>
1: incredible.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. so silly. so silly. That's the little amazing. mind games help you get you through conservatory.
1: Right, 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 right. Totally. Wow. I forgot awesome. about that tree though, but anyway, okay,
0: cool. Favorite professor shout out?
1: Hmm. I've had a lot of great professors and really appreciate it. I got to study with Dave Burkhart and Mark Inouye when I was in San Francisco at the conservatory, and they were really transformative in helping me to make that next step into a professional career and helping me to lay the groundwork for that. So I really appreciate them. And also my professors from my undergrad, Randy Gabrowski and Jim Bobinette, they were absolutely the right people for me at that time. And I'm really grateful to have studied with them.
0: Yeah. Most inspired musical hero of any genre?
1: So there's so many, but I've been thinking a lot about Chick Corea lately. Unfortunately, he passed away and pretty recently, but he's somebody that he has an album called Native Sense. And I remember putting on this album and just being so struck by like the first four notes of it, just his like rhythmic intensity and just the direction of the music that he was making. And it was one of those real aha musical moments that inspired me a lot. And I went back to that album quite a bit. Also, like, really appreciated his collaborations with other artists like Bobby McFerrin mm-hmm. and so many people. He's got a lot of great work.
0: Yeah. No, I, I don't think I'm familiar with that album. I'll have to go check it out. Oh, check it out. Yeah.
1: The opening speaks volumes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Most transformative performance experience.
1: When I graduated from the conservatory, one of the first things I did was I ended up getting a job in South Africa. So I went and I played with an orchestra down there. And that's uh, right. Yep. I
0: remember people were talking about that. Okay. Yeah. Go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, forgot yeah. About
1: that. So that whole experience was pretty transformative, but actually, yeah, very much so musically. We did a lot of concerts with choirs and in the area I was living, it's called KwaZulu-Natal. There's a real tradition there of a lot of Zulu choirs. So in every single town and just about everybody you meet will be singing in these choirs and we would play choir competitions with thousands of people and and many different choirs would come and sing with the orchestra but I was really struck by getting to sit in the back and next to these singers which are just sort of community people they're people from the community they're not like professional singers or anything like that they would come and sing so well and with so much just presence and commitment that I would get like a real physical reaction like I'd have goosebumps on the back of my neck every single time it was like you know people always talk about getting goosebumps from something and I think I understood that but then it was like so consistent I just knew it was gonna happen every time they sang behind me and it was crazy and so I just think about that and I think about their relationship with music and my relationship with music and how it's just so vital music is vital to humanity and I think it's important to remember that especially as a professional musician you you get into a zone where you're like I do professional music making and it's this kind of thing but music for me it's an eternal force so I think that it's hard to really put it in too much of a box and you really can't necessarily do that
0: yeah I mean, I'm just kind of blown away of how beautiful you just spoke of music and just what it means in our humanity and everything and just how descriptive that is that you couldn't even like turn off your chills, you know, despite knowing that they're going to come, you couldn't stop it. You know, it was was a physical reaction. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Wow.
1: I wish I was there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you should go. They were so connected with that. And the thing is, like, if you go to South Africa and you search for some choirs and stuff like that, you will find them, especially in KwaZulu-Natal and man, just amazing 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 singers down there
0: nice next piece you'd like to learn
1: yeah I'm working on a couple things right now I'm working on a piece by Gregson that's it's a concerto for trumpet it's kind of inspired by Shostakovich it has some really cool interval things and some nice sort of twisted melodies and sort of driving rhythms I'm really loving it right now
0: You know, when you were mentioning and describing the piece and you mentioned Shostakovich, I'm surprised that you didn't say Shostakovich in the Shostakovich or Prokofiev question because Shostakovich piano concerto number one is almost practically a trumpet concerto as well. I love
1: Shostakovich and I did a little research and I sort of listened to your podcast before and I've actually been thinking about this. I was like Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Like which one? Oh, okay. Shostakovich to me is very like precise music and Mm. very really meticulous music almost. And Prokofiev, There's a little bit more just organicness in his music and breaking his own rules in some ways there's like a little bit more of him coming out through the music i don't know how to
0: describe well i mean i mean frankly that's yeah of course because i mean that was his situation the differences of their situations as well totally absolutely dostakovich literally being in a box in the soviet union where he couldn't actually fully express what he was feeling or thinking and prokofiev fleeing to go to america and therefore yeah
1: absolutely yeah yeah i guess i didn't even been thinking about that aspect of it but that's yeah. super interesting yeah yeah Shostakovich music is so it feels so confined you know it, it's amazing but yeah it has that sort of feeling to the tension to
0: yeah it. okay well in any case, you're, anyway. you're done with the spitfire questions. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, Ari, can you walk me through your musical origin story? How did you yeah. find a trumpet? When did you decide that that was the career for you? Walk us through your musical education and all the steps that brought you to where you are today.
1: Yeah. For me, I grew up in a musical family. My grandfather was a child of Italian immigrants and he ended up living in Iowa and he had in this little town along with my grandmother, who's a pianist, they ended up having an Accordion studio of like over a hundred students in this little town. Wow. So like everybody at that time was playing the accordion. Which That's is awesome. Great. Yeah, it's super crazy. It's both my parents are musicians too. My dad used to play the trumpet, and my mom was a flute player, pianist, and choir director. And they they've continued to do music all along. My dad still is playing. Um, he plays something called the electronic valve instrument now, and he has a band called Worldport, and they do like jazz influence, world music, and stuff like that. So I just grew up around all of that. And I I grew up meeting musicians and I admired them and I I wanted to be one of them. And so I went through the process and my parents did a lot of talking with me about, you know, what the career path is like. And I'm I'm not sure that any amount of preparation from your parents telling you what the career path is going to be like is going to prepare you for what the career path is actually like. Maybe you can relate to that. It's so different going through it yourself and finding out what it's like to be a musician, I think, today. So so I went through school and I was looking at different places of going to grad school and at the time when I was in my undergrad I was doing a lot more jazz stuff and I had like a band that played all of my own original music oh yeah and I did like a jazz minor and I was a little bit torn maybe in terms of like a direction to go in really like playing classical music too I was doing some stuff with orchestras in Iowa and I yeah I just decided that I would go head first in get myself some orchestral training and so that's why I went to the Conservatory in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and then yeah, after I graduated, I went down to South Africa. Then I came back, and then I've been freelancing and playing with a lot of different groups, which brings us to now. I mean, I'm, I'm now I'm trying to get more into writing music, more into doing my own thing with small ensembles and tapping more into the creative side for me of playing music. I think I always knew that I wanted to do more in terms of the writing music and stuff like that. That's definitely been a little piece of my story the whole way along. When I was a little kid, I took piano lessons and I wasn't a great piano student, but I really was kind of on fire when my teacher had us do this project where we write a little bit of music and I really enjoyed that. And so I sort of kept that side of myself going a little bit even though i was doing like a lot of orchestral music i was still writing stuff i was still coming up with ideas and then i think that three or four years ago i was just thinking okay let me see what's going on here let me look at all of these ideas that i've been accumulating i would just sort of come up with maybe an idea and record it or write it down so i just sort of went back through stuff that i had written and i was like okay I like a lot of this stuff here. Let me go ahead and see what things I can make something out of. And so that got me restarting my wheels. I think with that, there was Mm -hmm. a little bit of time where it's kind of like practicing. It's a little bit of a muscle for me, I think, in terms of writing music. And I kind of have to write a lot of different things at the same time in order to have enough ideas to be generative with. And Mm -hmm. then I can gravitate towards one thing and then focus on it.
0: I see. Did you ever take any composition classes or lessons at the conservatory or anywhere in your studies?
1: Yeah, so I did. I was maybe going to do like a double major in composition actually early on in undergrad. And then I ended up not doing that. But then when I went to University of Northern Iowa, I had a really great jazz professor, Chris Mertz, and we worked on some composition stuff. And he sort of helped me to refine and find some new ways to kind of look at some of the music that I was writing. And at that time, and, and really all through that, I'd just been mainly writing jazz music. It's only recently that I've been like writing some classical music. I'm probably going to take some lessons and work on sort of refining and finding a little bit more of my voice in that. It's kind of new territory for me.
0: Right. And not to veer so much away from your compositional pursuits, but can you describe some of the groups that you're a part of? Yeah, my brass quintet, Brass Over
1: Bridges, is a group that the name of the group sort of really describes a lot about the ethics of the ensemble and the idea of the group is connection. And so that's sort of between whether that's connection between or across genres or across sort of different musical idioms or within culture and among people, you know, and also just the connection between the performers and the connection with the audience and that sort of thing. We find different ways of creating projects around that. And before COVID hit, we were about to do a program of music by female composers. Mm -hmm. We had some stuff on there that we were excited about. We had like commissioned uh, this composer, Julie Barwick, to write a piece that was based on four poems by different San Francisco poets. And each poem is sort of like a different lens on life and the Bay Area and that sort of stuff. We felt really good about the project. I think it had a lot of interesting points of connection and similarity between music and poetry and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit about that group. And yeah, and then the other group I play with is. uh, one Found Sound. That's a democratically run conductualist orchestra. And I've been playing with them for a while now. I think maybe six years or something. I was going to say, um, were you there since
0: their inception? I was
1: in South Africa during oh, the first okay. year. Yeah. I got to sort of catch up and play with them when I got back. And I've just always appreciated the people that I get to play with in that group. And I think there's a lot of care for the music. There's a sense of for the ensemble from musician to musician, I think, which is really good. And ownership from every single person, which is is kind of like the musical experience that I'm looking for. Right.
0: And what you were saying, it's something that sometimes you feel like you miss out on in a normal symphonic setting. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you get the best of both worlds in that sense. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It's a little bit different way of playing. And because without a conductor, the group has to maybe compensate for things in different ways and play with each other a little bit differently you know and it's a subtle thing and as a performer I think it's fun to get to engage with that Mm -hmm. side of orchestral playing a little bit more because at the end of the day ensemble playing is ensemble playing and the same skills are always applying generally just on different levels you know whether that's micro a duet or you've got 40 or 50 people the same things are coming into play just on different levels so it's nice to be able to sort of tap into those skills.
0: I mean I have my own experiences playing in a conductorless orchestra with yeah. my group Kinetic based in Houston, Texas, but oh, cool. that's just a string orchestra. You know, in some ways yeah. it's a little bit easier to be cohesive in sound oh. and strokes. We can talk about bowings and all the string things, but right. to add winds, brass, percussion on top of that to me it sounds so intimidating to do. But obviously, totally. I mean, yeah, one Found yeah. sound has
1: been so successful. Yeah. With chamber music, yeah, I think that for string players you have so much visual information that you can communicate with each other and just with winds and brass there's less but there's still you know there's movement there's still ways there's the breath there's different ways of sort of communicating in that way I think and it's really nice to have to have your radar like all the way up for that sort of stuff I think it makes the music it adds a little bit more life to it when you have to be a little bit more on the edge of your toes for things that you might normally just be like that's simple but you really have to be fully engaged so yeah I think that that's a thing about it
0: yeah you're also a professor at Sacramento State University. How has that been, especially since the pandemic? Being a brass yeah. player,
1: yeah, there's certain things about it that are are really difficult. Yeah, I'm I'm like really looking forward to being back in person. There are certain things about it though that have been a little small silver lining. One is that it's gotten me to ask my students to record themselves a little bit more. Okay, and help them to engage with that process, which can be so helpful for us. And just giving them a little goal every week to turn in a recording to me so that I can listen to it and it's a little bit better quality than what I can hear over zoom sure and then we can go through and we can talk about it for me with like a lesson I like to have time when I'm like okay we're gonna just workshop stuff we're gonna go back and forth we're gonna talk about things you're gonna play a little bit and then I'm gonna stop you and we're gonna continue that process and then I also like to have time that's giving them a performance opportunity Like a weekly, they have to be fully prepared on something, whether it's small or a full etude or something like that, and just be ready to go ahead and perform it. And I'll pretend that I'm in the audience. I like having that sort of two aspects of things. I don't think you want a lesson to be all like here, make it feel like an audition for somebody. Right. Um, But I don't know if it can also go the other way if you spend the whole lesson just workshopping things.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And also that brings a more of a dimension to the screen that you can use this. virtual option in multiple different kinds of facets yeah that's really clever to consider and implement in your teaching thank you
1: it's nice to be able to go back and if we've got the recording there we can just rewind it and we can listen to a certain spot and we can focus on that
0: right since you're my first trumpet player trumpeter
1: sure both
0: (laughs) really okay yeah
1: yeah, no, it could be either one.
0: Trumpetist, okay. trumpet, trumpeter. I don't know. <laughs> trumpeter, yes, I prefer <laughs> trumpeter. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about specs about the instrument? Talk shop how many different kinds of trumpets there are, what the parts are, and generic things for someone who might not have any idea about a trumpet. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, the trumpet is a brass instrument that you play by vibrating your lips. It has a long history, and it started out without any sort of valves on it, and so you could only play in the harmonic series, and that's where you have these Baroque pieces that are sort of very high in the upper register because that was the only range where you could actually play scales. Right, and and, so that's
0: kind of like a bugle.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the real history of the instrument is that it had a lot of utility to society and it was used mainly for like war and for signaling people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is an interesting aspect, I think, of the trumpet that is still a huge part of the instrument today and the way that it's used. It can play loud and it plays a lot of sort of fanfare type music, even in like all of the standard orchestral repertoire. It's like all of the sort of like fanfare type music, I would say, and signaling. And so that's just an interesting aspect of the instrument. I think that it has this projection of strength but it also it, which is, I think is also really cool it has like a very sort of sensitive side to the instrument and it can be very expressive and colorful in different ways so that's a little bit of the story of the trumpet
0: mm-hmm. so over time there were technical advances to the trumpet and that's where you got the piston so you've got those like three and then a thumb trigger thingy going on right
1: yeah with the valves we we're oh, able sorry to... they're valves
0: I'm sorry yeah
1: it's okay
0: okay
1: yeah you're right With those, we're able to play chromatically. And before that, trumpet players were not able to play chromatically. And they had to show up to a gig with like a lot of different crooks so that they could Add different lengths of tubing to the instrument, and so that they could be functional in different keys. You know, and the consequence of that is that, like, you know, a lot of composers, like, say, like Beethoven, they didn't write a lot of music for the trumpet because at that time there wasn't necessarily a whole lot that they felt like the instrument could do.
0: Yeah, it's a little limited. Yeah, you you can only play in the certain key that the harmonic series of that key. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, as a consequence, we didn't get some music from certain composers that it would have been really nice to get some great music from. But on the other side of that i feel like the trumpet and brass music in general is a little bit we don't have necessarily the same canon of composers writing for us but we also which in my opinion maybe makes the future a little bit more open or that sort of feeling
0: Yeah. I remembered, isn't there a Haydn trumpet concerto or something like that?
1: There is a Haydn trumpet concerto. Yeah, we were lucky enough to get it. The Haydn trumpet concerto is one of the first pieces that we were able to play in a scalar way in the low or middle register. So the first three notes of the Haydn concerto are just an E flat major three notes, but it was actually like really significant for the instrument. Just the first time that we were able to do that. And it was on an instrument that doesn't sound anything really like the modern trumpet. It was on a keyed bugle. Um, and so you put all these vents on a bugle, like a saxophone, and it makes all of the notes sound very sort of different from each other. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, it's pretty unique.
0: Yeah, That's something that I kind of miss when we've modernized all of these instruments from back then. I mean, another example would be at the pianoforte. So a modern piano, for instance, is going to sound basically the same from the bass all the way to the treble, but On a piano forte, the registers are so different Mm. in sound and timbre that... Right. We just missed that in some of the music that was created back then, because that was obviously in the ears of the composers back then. And there's characters assigned to certain ranges and either limitations or different colors of the instruments back then. But I, oh, I don't yeah. need to go on a whole like performance pr- practice, no, that's, but that's so cool yeah. that it was each note had a different color and sound to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it's a very interesting thing, especially about like, interpreting this older music and thinking about how it was performed and, and also their perspective on it as well. I I think that one thing that's really unique about especially that older music is that I think it was written both from the perspective of the only way that you could hear that music was if somebody performed it so it was written a lot of it I think was written to be enjoyable to perform and also enjoyable to listen to because I think that that was part of spreading your music was do people like to play it is it fun for them to play so there's some fun qualities I think to classical music especially yeah yeah
0: so in modern times there are multiple different kinds of trumpets because they're also pitched differently how many different ones are there and why are there so many different trumpets
1: well the reason that we have so many different trumpets has to do with just the nature of the instrument and that you're always battling against the harmonic series so we're as we get into the upper register the harmonic series gets closer and closer together and so for us certain things will fit differently depending on range and so that's one of the reasons why you see like if you think about different keyed trumpets one of the you know i I guess the most major like different keyed trumpet that people see is the piccolo trumpet for baroque repertoire and it's really short and the reason for that is that you take away all The tubing and all of a sudden you're not playing as high in the harmonic series. But so the interval structure allows you to be just a little bit more accurate and feel a little bit more comfortable. So I appreciate all of the different keyed instruments (laughs) that they give me. Yeah, different repertoire, different like excerpts. You're really grateful to be able to pull out an E flat trumpet and play something on it, or you know, even like C trumpet in orchestra versus B flat trumpet for string players in orchestra. It's like you're always playing the key A, D, E g stuff like that if you're playing it on a b flat trumpet you're putting everything into the key of b major f sharp major you know not great keys for the instrument intonation wise and then also a little bit more uncomfortable with your fingerings or whatever that being said like there are many amazing amazing players that play b flat trumpet in orchestra and that's what they do mainly in the uk especially so that's just my take on it like it's definitely for me to play c trumpet in an orchestra but it's just the tradition that they have in america right
0: now And I also was curious, for me in orchestras, as a cellist, it's easy to kind of blend in. You're part of kind of the mass army of strings, but being a trumpet person.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, being a trumpet person.
0: (laughs) No, it's trumpeteer, isn't that? That's what I've coined it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Trumpetista.
0: (laughs) It's as if you're a piccolo. You're exposed. Like, whatever you play, anyone's going to hear it at all times, right? Yeah. What is the scariest moment you've ever had on stage in that way?
1: Yeah. Okay. Is um, it also
0: sprock? Is it
1: <laughs> Oh, that's that's really great. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Yeah, the, the trumpet can be a really scary instrument to play. Fortunately, the reason that people get into the trumpet, and I think this is where people get this idea of like trumpet personalities, is that generally trumpet players don't pick this loud instrument because they don't like to be heard. They <laughs> like to be heard. So yeah. th- that's that, that's kind of like a universal trumpet thing. They want to be heard. Yeah, I mean, outside of that, yeah, it can be absolutely terrifying. And especially like with, you know, a big orchestra, it can be very exposed at certain moments. Actually, one of the scariest moments for me, have you played Rite of Spring before? Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm. Okay, so that's just a scary
0: experience in the entire orchestra. Yeah, it's scary for everyone. (laughs)
1: Everyone's scared out of their mind. Yeah, I got to play that with the San Francisco Symphony. It was super cool. awesome. And I was so excited. And I was playing, I think there's the fourth trumpet part. And so the fourth trumpet part, there's some stuff in it. Generally not too bad, like fine. But there is one moment in there that is like extremely difficult to count. And the fourth trumpet player comes in all by him or herself and the whole rhythm of the orchestra at that moment is like really up in the air it's just like a very confused moment and if the fourth trumpet player does not enter correctly and (laughs) nail down these series of 16th notes or whatever it is it runs the risk of really throwing off the entire orchestra like the the, all of the other trumpet players are going to enter based on that oh they're not necessarily counting out your part for you while you're in it Right. So I just remember that moment feeling like the world oh, was like on me. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The whole yeah. fourth
1: trumpet player coming in to sub with them. And fortunately, it went well. So okay. like, <laughs> it went well but yeah I mean that's like just that's an intense moment and sometimes you just gotta ride the wave
0: yeah I was gonna say it I could see myself in that position being confident but then in the moment last minute doubting myself and then saying well wait did I doubt but then, uh, then I'm which one is it like <laughs> I'll just go yeah. now
1: <laughs> yeah 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 that's just no one wracking. of those moments there's no yeah no room for doubt
0: well is this a good time to take a break
1: yeah let's take a break
0: okay cool we'll be right back Welcome back from the break. So, Ari, you wanted to discuss how creativity fuels your musicianship.
1: Absolutely. Elaborate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. So, first of all, yeah, in terms of fueling musicianship, and this is just something that's something on my mind. I did some Zoom master classes for some high school students, and I was thinking a lot about being a musician and the path that we're on and the types of things that we pay attention to when we're going through and we're working on different things, just wanting to sort of double down on this notion of your own personal intuition, like listening to the things that you enjoy personally, the things that are meaningful for you, collecting as you go, the meaningful recording, the meaningful musical experience that you have, all of these things that can kind of go into your musicianship, the things that fuel you. Mm -hmm. and being willing to listen to things that are maybe different from somebody else. Maybe it's like, for example, you, or I don't know every cellist that's doing a podcast, but maybe for you, like creating a podcast is something that's really fueling for you. Mm -hmm. And for me, that thing is writing music and being creative and thinking about music creatively and finding sort of new ways to engage with what I'm doing. And during the pandemic, for a lot of us, I think, is a little bit of just a forced sort of sit down Mm -hmm. and like confront what you're doing. You're not able to sort of continue with the status quo of like, I'm going to this gig and then I'm going to that gig and I'm going to this gig and sort of letting those things define you and having to, in a healthy way, hopefully, you know, sort of redefine, you know, what it means for each of us to be musicians. And from what I've gotten out of that for myself is just the notion that I need to really listen to my need to be creative. And to really follow my nose with that. So that's why I've been, I've been writing a lot of music and creating some pieces with video and other things like that. For me, it's the kind of thing where I, once I start working on a project like that and I'm in the middle of it and everything's fine or cool, I, it's very easy for me to just like lose track of time mm-hmm. and just be fully engaged with what I'm doing. And it's just such a nice space to be in that I'm realizing more and more that that's something that's just really important to me. Like if I love it so much, why aren't I doing more of that? So that's why I'm pursuing that.
0: Throughout your musical career, have you discovered what your creative process is? And if so, what are those steps that you have discovered? Yeah, yeah
1: totally. That's a, yeah, that's great. So for me, with creativity, I'm, I feel lucky that I grew up in a house. My dad is an artist, and in addition to being a musician, professional artist, and he illustrated a lot of different books and does fine art now. But the creativity was, has been a topic on my mind since I was a little kid. And the notion that I have about creativity and this is maybe, I think, a little contrary to how a lot of people feel about it. I feel like it's very much a process that everybody can go through. Everybody's creative as long as they are willing to engage with the process. And there are certain aspects of it when you get an idea that you, you're really in love with. There's certain sort of magical aspects of that. But for me, it's very much almost just like a craft to creativity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. People think of creativity as being without craft, but I think that there's craft to creating that space. And for me, what it is, is mainly just starting with something that catches my ear or it could be, you know, in terms of writing music, you know, there's plenty of days that something doesn't catch your ear or maybe a lot of things are catching your ear. It's just sort of a matter of then limiting yourself, settling on one thing, saying, I'm going to, okay, well, this is the idea that I'm going to work with for today. And there's a little bit of discipline yourself around that. That's a process that we can all, you know, engage with. Whether that's like brainstorming or going off of things, and and just being aware as we go throughout our day of different things that we find to be interesting or inspiring, and making a little mental note, being willing to go back. and I think it's also just the the license, you know, to be creative. A lot of I know so many people and that are musicians that I feel like say, well, I'm not creative, or like they don't necessarily see themselves in this sort of creative way. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's an opportunity there. And in that, they have a harder time sort of like letting themselves go and trying different ideas.
0: Right. Taking a risk, in other words, sort of idea. Yeah,
1: there's definitely risk involved with it. And there's sort of a lot of fear that you end up wrestling with.
0: As you were describing what your creative process was, I was brainstorming this idea about how creativity is the marriage between inspiration and personal identity. You know, because you have to see something and observe something outside of, or listen, or, you know, intake some level of yeah. inspiring material and then have your conscience latch onto that and say, Hey, I can do something with this. Yep. So I was thinking about that kind of balance, which also ties into what you were saying about kind of having confidence in yourself, knowing yeah. that you can execute this idea that formed in your brain from this thing that inspired you. I never really sat down and analyzed it like that before, but it makes sense to me. For yeah. instance, when I'm teaching my students, currently my students are learning thumb position, which is the higher register. It's a totally yeah. different new hand frame setup than when you begin. And it's yeah. often a bit scary. I remember being scared of learning thumb position and playing yeah. in it because it's just a different way you relate with gravity to the instrument. Right, And this is a long winded way of saying I like to cook a lot and I like to make a poke bowl. And I was slicing some fish the other day. And I realized that the angle of which to slice the fish matters for the flavor profile that you get and how much fat and protein mixed in rather than just cutting it just square and perpendicular. You really have to go at an angle, a very acute angle to slice it. Mm. And I realized that that was very similar to how I would imagine myself kind of slicing my fingerboard. It was kind of this idea of inspiration from slicing some fish to then applying it to music. yeah, Meeting my own vision of what one act was doing, serving another purpose.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I I think that that's a really great example. I mean, go back on what you were saying before. Yeah, the willingness and the license to be creative, I think is something that in classical music, I would love to see more of that. You know, I mean, I was doing jazz and stuff in my undergrad and in jazz, it's much more expected that you're going to be sort of pushing your creative bounds. You're going to be writing music. You're kind of expected if you're going into like performing that you're going to be writing music as well. And in classical music, it's a little bit more of the opposite expectation. You're either doing one or the other, you're a performer or you're a composer. Mm -hmm. And then just to jump forward and think about you're talking here about this process. I think that that's a lot of how creativity or ideas happen is we set the framework. So you're teaching these lessons and you're talking to them about the thumb position and then your mind's off of it. You're doing something else. And all of a sudden you get this sort of notion of maybe a different way of describing or thinking about the thumb position when you're doing something totally unrelated, you know, it's like (laughs) pokeballs. And so I think that that's how a lot of it works. Like there's a, there's a need to, you know, charge hard and work on an idea. And And then there's also a need to like step back and do something different and allow it to sort of percolate in the background. For me, I'll be in a couple different stages at the same time. One is I'm I'm like really generating a lot of ideas. And then the other is that I'm like more sort of focused and doing some hard work to sort of puzzle out where things are going to go with some music. And each one is like has its own sort of challenges and joys. But it's really important for me to be constantly doing the generation of ideas ideas, mm-hmm. uh, staying fresh, because that's what I'm able to draw from when I'm done with the other thing. So right. that's- and it all kind of works together in your mind. Like, it's like the little ideas that I'm coming up with. It'll be like seven days. I can sit myself down, you know, for seven days in a row and not come up with like an idea that I really appreciate. But then maybe, you know, on the eighth day, it's going to be like, oh, like I went for a walk and I came back and sat down on the piano and something just seemed right. And it just sort of came out.
0: Right there's also a bit of experimentation when it comes to creativity, right? Cause there's, there's gotta be a way that you get inspired. You have a initial idea, but you have to execute it. There's a bit of an experimental process because not all ideas are good, right? Not everything right. is going right. to actually, yeah. That's kind of what you were just describing a little bit. Was that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like your own scientific method. Like you're coming <laughs> up with the things that you're studying are these little ideas or whatever that you have. And then the judgment comes in, then, you know, relying on your your intuition to decide you know what are the things that I really like what would I want to put on the radio in my car and listen to or what would I want to like sit down in a concert hall and and listen to what would be interesting for me you have to trust yourself a little bit and then go with that and then there's always like you know you're gonna look back on it and you might hate it you know (laughs) like like that was
0: that's another thing I wanted to touch on and in my personal observation of how I've I guess again this is all kind of a first initial analysis of my creative process, that there's an element of, I don't necessarily know if this is the best word to use, but destruction, that mm-hmm. at some level, you have to reanalyze what you did and see if that was good or bad. And yeah. and I actually find sometimes in this destructive process that that actually fuels more of my next inspiration to generate more creativity. So there's a bit of a cycle, at least in mm-hmm. my experience. I don't know, do you have similar experiences? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I think that there are certain Things that I've made
1: that for me have been more durable over the years, and then there are certain things that don't last. Maybe I made something, and then like two months later, I'm like, "That's not me," you know. <laughs> and so I think that that's where a lot of fear comes in, especially around the creative process. Is like, you know, looking back and being kind of reflective on things and seeing like, "Oh, well, I don't like that," or "I don't like that," and it can kind of erode a little bit of your confidence in the future. But I mean, just like practicing, you know, it, it's a practice. You know, same with our instruments. We just have to. Know know that we're not going to stay the player that we were 10 years ago you know we're we're in the practice room today and give yourself sort of the courage and and a little bit of the forgiveness to know that it's a valuable thing for you and keep going
0: yeah I also was thinking similar you know as artists we also conceive of ourselves in a linear way and considering our body of work as some other artists might call it tying in with what we're talking about this idea that we always want to produce something that's going to be identifiable to who we are as in that moment. But then when you look back, I don't know, even two hours later or whatever, or 10 years later, you're like, wow, that was not who I am anymore. Right. Right. And I think if I remember my own personal experience when I was in school, a lot of my fears was putting something out there that was supposedly representative of me as an artist, but I wasn't proud of, or I wasn't sure if that was who I was because I was still trying to find myself. Right. Right. So years later now, here I am. I mean, obviously it's a process, as you're saying, it's a lifelong journey, but I have more confidence in myself now to take more risks or do things that I know 10 years ago, I wouldn't have done that or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to
1: get past certain aspects of it. If that's the stage that you were in at that time, that's fine. And like, you know, there certainly is a developmental time for all musicians.
0: I guess for me, in hindsight, it's comforting for me to know that your audiences are with you throughout your entire life and they see the changes that you go through and experience those little snapshots of your life in that moment, right? And so we're not just all being analyzed 100% on one performance. I mean, some occasionally, I suppose, but I mean, it is a whole body of work. Your work is ever evolving and it's going to be representative of your entire life, which is such a cool thought to consider. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think that that's really well said. You know, like you said, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you'd have a little more fear or put a little more emphasis on putting something out and feeling like this is going to be me and I totally feel like that you we wrestle with that and sort of we always want to put out the best and it's easy for that to in small ways kind of get in the way of putting things out there or like creating and it's easy to stop yourself because you're like well this isn't my magnum opus but there's also just a need to you know realize and look at other musicians or artists like how many bands do we love that we don't love every single song that they have or Or how many artists, classical composers do we love? And there's some pieces that we don't care for as much. It's a part of the process. And, you know, overcoming that fear is vitally important to releasing the work. Do we want to be prisoners of our greatest, you know, work? Or do we want to just get down to business and do it and make the thing?
0: Yeah. Is there anything in particular that you've noticed for yourself that helps you recharge or helps you find inspiration or helps you in any of those ways that are other than, you know, observing maybe the outdoors or something along those lines? Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. I mean, it's like, it's good to take a break from it and like to be away from things for a while. And, you know, just like when you were talking about cutting the sushi for the poke bowl, being away from it, doing something else can be, you know, just as important. A lot of, I think, creative stuff it happens when we, we sit down and do the work. And then a lot of it is also happening sort of subconsciously when we're not working on things where, mm-hmm. you know, our minds are processing all of the ideas that we've been coming up with. So
0: the um, marination and other, if yeah, keep using yeah, exactly. a food terms. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. That's really important for recharging and having fun with it, you know, trying something different. And like, we all want to work on that big project, but maybe just sit down and do something kind of lighthearted, you know, like don't put so much pressure on every single thing that you make to be perfect or a certain way. And I also think that it's really good imposing limits on yourself to generate creativity. Like for example, like I have to write something now with only two notes or I have to do this or that. Sometimes that takes a little bit of your own psyche out of it for a minute. It lets you off the hook because it's like, oh, well, I mean, I would have done something better if I could have used three notes, but I'll just get to it and write something. And then you might create something you really enjoy.
0: This is going to be a total left field thing. But what you're saying reminds me of procrastinators. Yeah, totally. Because people who procrastinate are actually very, very, quote unquote, creative and imaginative. And the reason why they procrastinate is because they don't want to put anything down in stone before they're really percolating and coming up with that creative solution or Mm -hmm. that solution. And so that's why they procrastinate it's they need that time. But at the same time, they also need a deadline to just put something down (laughs) and send it, you know?
1: Yeah. And I thought
0: that was an interesting perspective on procrastination because, you know, I think oftentimes people think of... of people who are procrastinate as kind of lazy or they're not really focused. They're not paying attention. Right. Why don't they right. just get the job right. done and move on yeah. to the next thing, you know? But, but yeah. Maybe,
1: yeah, maybe they're thinking it through in a, a little bit different way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the timeline- I, I'm a procrastinator. I'm a procrastinator. <laughs> so I definitely, I'm like, oh, cool. All right, that's good.
0: You're validated. Yeah, <laughs> <I'm> validated.
1: <laughs> yeah, also with creative stuff, deadlines. For me right now, there's just a few spots working on stuff where I feel like I get stuck. And it's mainly because I'm, you know, it's my project. If I'm writing a piece of music or recording something, there's no deadline. Like I can put it out whenever. And so my sort of need for it to be perfect before I put it out, it, it'll be like done. It'll be basically done. But I'll be like, oh, well, maybe I'll do a little bit more. But it, that's a real zone where I'm wrestling right now.
0: But I think we all struggle with that too. Getting most of it done, but then not really yeah, finalizing yeah. it and really being, again, sort of confident to say, this is really what I want. That's yeah.
1: Being confident to say it's done. Yeah. It's yeah. challenging.
0: Yeah. And also thinking about deadlines, I was thinking like, I guess that's for me also an inspiring thing because if there wasn't a deadline for something, I don't know if I would be working on it. I think the podcast, for instance, is a great example of that, (laughs) you know, because I have a deadline each week to produce an episode. And so. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, having that like, okay, I'm going to do this every week. It sort of lights a fire in a different way. And Mm -hmm. as musicians and we're working on different things, like, you know, during normal, like sort of gigging times, we're being creative where we're. figuring out how new ways of playing music or something that we have for a concert. And we have the concert. That's a right. real deadline. You know? And that's, that's
0: like, a- you gotta be ready. If not, you are going to make a huge fool of yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's
1: all on the line.
0: Is there anything throughout the pandemic that you've found that generated some more inspiration and creativity for you? I know that you're mentioning some of your friends and the projects that they've been doing. Is there anything around relating to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, with the pandemic, I started off while I was like, okay, well, I'm going to practice some music. And so I started really trying to like discipline myself to practice some etudes and stuff. And I was working on them. And then I was feeling like, not super excited. I mean, I just wasn't, I was like, okay, I'm maybe I'm not super excited about these etudes or something. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll write my own etude. And so then I started writing, I wrote a bunch of little etudes for myself. And I was like, this is like really fun for me. And, and so then I go a little further down that path for myself. It's been interesting because just the forced pause and the forced time of reflection, I think it got a lot of people to just look at things differently. And, you know, it helped in some ways to like see past all of the day-to-day there's so much day-to-day i think as a musician there's just like you're teaching you're you're gigging you're like especially you driving
0: know, and traveling uh, commuting yeah, is yeah, yeah, a yeah. huge you're, one
1: yeah you're, you're juggling all of the, your schedule is crazy. And when you take all of that away, there's a the moment of panic. We rely on that frantic energy. But with doing the satisfying work that we want to do, maybe that's more like long-term thinking and and more like personal time and feeds into creating a long-term like satisfaction for what we're doing than like go, 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 go all the time.
0: Right. It gives us a moment of reflection.
1: Yeah, I absolutely. And we're still kind of in the middle of it now. So I think that when we three, four years down the road, when we look back on this time, I think we'll see it differently. And for a lot of people, I think it might be just a change, you know, a real point of transformation.
0: Yeah. Or redefining values.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. definitely redefining values. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you have any last comments or thoughts that you wanted to share? Yeah,
1: I'm pro-creativity. And I, I think that it has the opportunity for people to really transform the world around them, the way that they see the world, the way they see themselves. I think that everybody can access it and it allows us to see new possibilities. And I just think that I would love to see more emphasis placed on it in classical music, especially. Especially, you know, if we think about ourselves, or like the next generation of classical musicians, we want to empower them, you know? Like I just think about my students in school right now. I want them to like leave feeling empowered and like ready to like be musicians in 2021 which is different than being a musician in 2012 or right. you know or even you know in the 90s you know it's just such a rapidly changing field and we're not going to know what musicians are going to be dealing with in the year 2040 the only way that we can prepare them for that is by giving them creative tools and creative license you know it's sort of like what you're talking about with the ability to identify with being creative
0: and identify with the scope of your life and how whatever you produce at any given time is just a snapshot of what you're going through at that time. It's not necessarily a holistic value of who you are as a person or whatever.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Great practice is being present to the moment and what we're experiencing I think so is your creative practice so like being present to the notes that are coming out of the piano that you're trying to write something with or your instrument and being focused there rather than on the output which we we have very little control I think over the output of you know a practice session Mm -hmm. or we have very little control over the output of like a creative session Mm -hmm. but we do have all the control in the world over the input so is the input positive is it constructive are we doing our best and as long as we're doing that than like building one day upon the next.
0: Right. Well, what a wonderful way to conclude (laughs) that this conversation on, yeah, on musicianship and creativity. Can I ask you two final questions? Yeah. What in your opinion is the most common misconception of classical music and the classical music world? Maybe it's what you're mentioning a little bit, but maybe you have another response.
1: The general population for classical music, the misconception I think is that they're not going to like it, that they're not going to like listening to it. But I really feel feel like that's one reason why it's important to get the music out and to play the music in a compelling and just vital way that a communicative way because it carries a lot of power it's power to connect people and if musicians can be more outperforming in a compelling way and engaging with new audiences i think that it gives them the opportunity to see classical music to hear it in a new way and to potentially see themselves as somebody that listens to classical music
0: yeah i mean i think that that is strange, I guess for me, misconception, but I have a bias, right? I'm in the field. I grew up listening to classical music. I don't see it as a barrier. While you're responding, I was thinking, you know, why do people who don't really have the same background that I do think that it is something that they're not going to like? And I thought, well, maybe is it because there's so many jingles that they get sick (laughs) and tired of listening to (laughs) commercials? And, you know, there's this barrier of some people think that they need to understand the music and understand the theory in order to really appreciate it, which, I mean, there's some level of truth to some extent, but that's that's not necessarily fully it either. But I think there's something about pop music there's hooks there's melodic hooks in little background textural things that signal to your brain oh this is this song and I like this song this makes me feel like I'm back in the club or this it reminds them of a memory a good memory that they had and I think that classical music has those hooks too but I don't know if we sell it that well not just Mm. as performers but how we even market classical music to the broad audiences as well
1: yeah that's really interesting I mean
0: I, I guess that's why pieces like they don't Fifth Symphony are things that people remember because they remember the three, four... Yeah. <laughs> Four yeah. first notes.
1: <laughs> All good. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No,
0: totally. How many are totally. there? Yeah.
1: It's like we know that we enjoy it and we know that we've experienced amazing, amazing classical music. You know, that's how you, you sort of fall in love with it is you this experience of it. With most people, I don't I don't know if even a lot of students in music school or even students in high school not knowing certain like, you know, sort of staple pieces or stuff like that. It's just like we know that there's like compelling music out there. And and I think that just like getting it in front of people. And letting them sort of listen to it in just a really, we're just going to listen to it sort of way, really letting the music speak for itself is yeah. good because when people listen to pop music, they don't necessarily feel like, oh, I need to know, like, let me research the history of pop music. Right.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: This. It's a little bit like that. Like the, the music does speak for itself. And if it's given the right chance in the right way, I think, I think a lot of people can sort of open their eyes and have a fresh way of experiencing music through classical music.
0: Yeah. And my next question is after all the impact <laughs> that covid has done to classical music what do you think is something positive that will enhance and carry on in our profession
1: Yeah I mean a little bit like what we were talking about before I think we are going to see people being more creative and having more license to do that I feel like I saw a lot of creative output from a lot of people where I was like oh I I had no idea that you were interested in that style of music or I had no idea that you were that that was a part of your musicianship and And I found that to be really, you know, encouraging for me and and probably encouraging for a lot of other, you know, musicians. And it's a little bit like kind of needing somebody to jump in there first and do it. And then everybody being like, well, hey, I kind of like doing that too. Like, I don't want to just do the same thing. And so in that respect, it's a cool time for the music and it's a cool time for musicians to capitalize on and push things into the next decade and see what things we can create. You know, there's so much future ahead of us and different ways that we people are thinking about shaping the music right now, which I think is really cool.
0: Yeah, that's not an answer I've heard often. Uh, really? Yeah, but I think it ties in obviously with with all you're saying. <laughs> so Yeah, totally. Are there any platforms or websites for our listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects?
1: Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram, just my name, Ari, uh, M-I-C-I-C-H and also like if you would like to follow me on youtube i think that they can find me just by searching my name they could become my 17th follower which Yay! would be really great <laughs> i think i'm gonna when i get to 20 subscribers i think i'll throw a 20 subscriber party <laughs> video
0: <laughs> that'll be fun And what about your other, other oh groups? yeah oh,
1: and, and then uh the brass quintet brass over bridges you can check out our website sign up for our email list sign up for my email list on my website remischik.com we don't send out a lot of email blasts but we do when it's important so you don't have to worry about getting too much spam please sign up follow oh and one found sound yeah 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 and uh sign up for the one found sound email list as well they're also on social media
0: nice and if you enjoyed listening to this podcast go ahead and press that subscribe button and leave a review on apple podcasts the reviews and ratings help this podcast be more visible to others and it's a free way to support the podcast another free way is to tell your friends and family about it and you can always become part of the Hyden behind the music stand family by donating to our patreon page at patreon.com slash music stand don't forget there's a Spotify playlist available that contains all the pieces we've discussed on the podcast. And please do not be discouraged by the length of the list because it's all really great music. And the link is always in the description of each episode. Also, it's a non-threatening way to introduce yourself to some of the music that we've discussed. You can just dive in and just click one track and just say, hey, I'm going to listen to this right now and see if I like it or not. And there's plenty of genres on there. So... Follow us on our social media Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Heiden Music Stand for more content. Thank you so much, Ari, for being on the show today. It's such a pleasure to reconnect with you and see that you're doing really well.
1: Hey, it's been really great to talk to you, Patty. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on and congrats on the show. You're doing awesome.
0: Oh, thank you. And thanks for listening. Sushi, say bye. <laughs> But why are there so many different trumpets?
1: Yeah. Um, can, I, can I
0: say can I say trumpet again? I said trumpet.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Go for it.